Okay, well, a very good afternoon, uh, or good morning, or good evening uh, to you, wherever you are in the world. Uh, welcome to this LSE Festival 2021 event uh, entitled How Can Policy Makers Use Behavioural Science? My name is Tony Travers. I'm a professor in the uh, School of Public Policy at the LSE, and I'm very glad indeed to be here this afternoon with among a number of my uh, distinguished colleagues to consider this highly topical event. I'll say no more uh, at the beginning before I introduce uh, my speakers than there has clearly been an enormous uptick in interest in uh, the way in which public policy uh, and indeed government is influenced by behavioural science in recent years. And against that backdrop, um, it's worth considering, I think particularly uh, in the light of the COVID-19 uh, pandemic, how far government can use behavioural science in an attempt to um, perhaps convince members of the public things are good for them or if they're mistrustful of public policy, find ways of encouraging them to change uh, their behaviour. But I think all of that has to be seen against the backdrop of not only harnessing uh, individuals' best interest or individuals using the state and others to influence the way individuals behave, but also I think it requires giving the public a greater understanding myself of the trade-offs which lie behind all public policy. And I'm sure we'll get into a number of these issues uh, today. It's a little bit from me. I think it's a fascinating subject. I'm very glad to be here to chair. Um, now, our speakers are uh, Teresa Almeida, who is Research Officer in Behavioural Science at the Inclusion Initiative at LSE, Paul Dolan, who's Professor of Behavioural Science at the LSE, Julian Legrand, uh, Professor of Social Policy at the LSE, and Grace Lorden, who's Associate Professor in Behavioural Science at LSE. It's an LSE festival, you get the message. So um, what I'm going to do now is to ask each of our speakers uh, starting with Grace, then Julian, then Teresa, then Paul, to speak for five minutes. And I'm going to ask each of them a question, uh, really, and then allow them to uh, expand on that for up to five minutes. So if I can ask you, Grace, uh, first to get us going. Um, how can policymakers make use of behavioural science when considering the future of work? Obviously, the future of work even more a topic of interest today than it would have been a year ago when the pen pandemic was uh, setting off. So Grace, over to you. Thank you, Tony. Um, well, I think um, as a starting point, it falls to economists to quantify things like skills shortages, skills surpluses, and to predict the skills shortages and skills surpluses with respect to future work. And I think knowing this will allow policymakers consider how to get people the skills they need to secure work that allows a decent standard of living, thinking both in terms of the stock of skills and the flow of skills. But then I think that there's a big role for behavioural scientists to ensure that people actually enter courses that contain in-demand skills, or at least that they're getting the information and the message that they are there, so they are making a conscious decision to actually avoid them. And I think it's also for behavioural scientists to think about people's happiness during this training. So while people might be incredibly happy in the moment training to be a hairdresser or a philosopher here at the LSC, the job prospects, which means basically getting a job directly related to the qualification, are much lower than somebody who trains to be a paramedic or trains to be an economist. 
And I think if we can model these happiness trade-offs and give the information to people ahead of time using messengers, then they can make better decisions. So I see policymakers, if they're working with behavioral scientists, taking much more seriously, breaking down these information barriers that people tend to have. Um, I think the future of work also raises kind of really interesting issues around monitoring um, as people continue to demand a higher level of work at home because of these kind of shifts that we've seen during COVID. I think that these changes will stick, particularly for jobs in newer industries like technology and also in older industries for occupations that have um, low that aren't dominated by men, essentially. Um, and we can kind of see this in the planning back to work and um, that that's actually starting to come out already. And I think behavioral scientists offer this unique lens to study to what extent we can lower monitoring when employees have meaning in their work, when they're embedded within a good culture. And they also have other intrinsic motivators. And for me, this is actually really interesting how we actually trade off intrinsic and extrinsic motivators. Um, it's also badly researched to date. And, and it strikes me as such an important omission, given that research on extrinsic incentives highlights a speedy adaptation to high paychecks. So if we could expand this area of study as behavioral scientists and work with policymakers, maybe even actually by extending the compensating differentials framework, I think there's an opportunity to learn a lot. Um, I think finally, behavioral scientists really have a role in helping policymakers understand how individuals form preferences over occupations. You know, I'm a woman who studied computer science and I would love to see more girls pursuing this degree, not because you're happy while you're studying computer science and not because they'll end up in a job of computer science, but because of the doors that it actually opens relative to other qualifications. Um, and I would like behavioral scientists to help policymakers understand how differential time preference stops people from poorer backgrounds going to university and how this can be overcome through readdressing costs and benefits in the present day. And finally, I think behavioral scientists can help policymakers better understand what goes wrong for underrepresented groups in general when they do enter jobs that don't have people like them. And I think this will actually help ensure that they stay and that they progress. And I really think that our biggest mistake in the future of work is that if we set things up that continue um, with the kind of exclusion trends of the past, so moving, moving towards inclusion. So I'll leave it there and leave it to the audience to ask me any question they want. As you've been uh, admirably uh, brief, can I ask you one before we move yeah. on? Um, which is, I, I absolutely get the point you're making, but I suppose looking into a very radically changing labour market, I mean, it was already changing before the uh, pandemic. It's now going to change very radically indeed. I suppose it puts an onus not only on delivering the kind of understandings, uh, and therefore potential benefits to those who would, you know, be influenced by, in the way you've described, but in a sense on the part of those who are trying to use behavioural science to understand where the market economy is going. I think yeah. it's a big challenge at the moment, isn't it? Because we're, you know, the whole range of jobs. I'm not entirely certain we do know. Um, I, 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 agree, I agree with you, Troy. So I think it's, it's impossible to predict the future and it's impossible to predict what the new jobs are going to be. And I think in some extent, there might be new skills that will emerge that we don't know yet. But I think what is very possible is to look to see what skills are actually in decline and what have been declining in value for a long time. So we stop investing in those so we won't be able to get the full piece of the puzzle. But I'll give you kind of a really good example. Um, I, I, some work came across my desk recently that really separates technology skills into what we call legacy technology skills. People who are learning technology, um, people who are learning SQL and Java, 
to new technology skills, so people who are learning how to code in Python, and really shows a huge wage premium for the people who are trying to code, who are learning how to code in Python. And I think actually understanding those trends so that we stop over-investing, which we still are, in teaching people how to do SQL coding and, and how to uh, look at Java, and that we open our minds to increasing the level of people who are, who are going through Python is something that I can safely say is worth doing now. And I think if we keep auditing that in that respect, then we're never going to be over-investing too much in skills that are in decline. Um, so I hear it a lot when we talk about the future of work. We either can do it or can't do it. And I think it's a grey area. There's somewhere in the middle. Okay, great. And and before I just hand on to, thanks for that, Grace, uh, hand on to Julian, just I, I need to say in the best traditions of uh, modern-ish technology, um, there is a, a Twitter handle for this, if, uh, hashtag LSE Festival, so if you want to uh, tweet about it, feel free. Julian, um, how can policymakers use behavioural science to help under-25s as the group most negatively affected by the COVID pandemic in terms of health wealth and happiness. It's clear for that not only in terms of job loss, but um, job opportunities lost right across the labour market for people, whether they're graduates or, or not, have been profoundly affected. So um, how can policymakers use behavioural science to help them? Well, thank you, Tony. And thank you for asking this question, because I do think that in all the debates and discussions about COVID-19, not enough attention has been paid to, on to two young adults, the situation of people aged between 18 and 25. I mean, of course, um, they've not been affected as badly in terms of health as the older members of the population. But they have probably suffered more in just about every other respect from the from the uh, from the pandemic. The more of them have dropped out of employment than any other group. They've all suffered the highest redundancy rates and they're disproportionately representing the furlough scheme. So when that stops, again, we'll see another wave, I think, of youth unemployment. But it isn't, it isn't only the unemployed that I want to think about. Um, it's the self-employed uh, or the, the youth who wish to, who wish to start up the we behavioral science has told us a lot about the importance of intrinsic motivation uh, and it's uh, very important and that intrinsic motivation has essentially been stifled by the by the COVID-19 and I suspect will be stifled by the recovery too I think the recovery is going to go over a set of conventional measures that will lead to a rather slow increase in conventional employment or or the kind of employment that Grace has just been talking about but not a great um, wave of new startups and um, and self-employed. So I'm rather keen to encourage that uh, as our next step forward. Now, how do we do that? Um, well, there is one area where we've learned quite a lot in recent years um, uh, about, uh, and that's the importance of capital. We live in a capitalist society, so it's not surprising that capital is important. Um, but one of the things that behavioral um, a few years ago behavioral scientists found was that the ownership of small amounts of capital uh, at a young age can make an enormous difference to people's subsequent lives. Uh, it turns out that people who have these small amounts of capital, three thousand, five thousand pounds, not not enormous amounts, at the age of twenty-one, have better outcomes throughout their lives. Not only in the obvious sense of having more self more self-employed, more uh, savings, but they show up with higher incomes uh, and even in quite social factors like better marital stability. 
And this is after you've taken account of all other factors like education and income uh, and, uh, and even personality type. Um, so what to do? Well, uh, here's an idea. Uh, most people have heard of the idea of universal basic income. Um, well, what about universal basic capital? Uh, this is a grant of, say, £10,000 given to every person on reaching the age of majority. It could be 18, 21, 25, if you like. It could be spent on anything, um, uh, or it could be restricted to pay for education, starting a business, which I would be particularly keen on, uh, or down payment, even down payment on a house. Um, and you'd fund it by an inheritance tax. Not as fanciful as it sounds. It's been suggested by a number of people. Um, I put it forward first in the 1990s, um, but since then, uh, Thomas Piketty uh, had, uh, advocated it. And recently in the United States, very interestingly, it's become part of the Black Lives Matter debate. Um, the, uh, the median net wealth of white families in the United States is 15 times that of black families on average. And this has been suggested, this idea of a grant has been suggested as a way of, uh, of taking this forward, a universal grant, to try and narrow some of these inequalities. Um, we did, in fact, have such a system, the Child Trust Fund um, in Britain, uh, much smaller amounts of money involved, and it was abolished to very little fuss um, uh, in the, into when the coalition government came into power. Um, an act of policy vandalism, in my judgment, but there it was. So there it is, um, Tony, a grant of universal basic capital funded by inheritance tax. Basically, you take the wealth of one generation and you use it to fund, to fertilise the growth of the next. As, as that early behavioural scientist, Francis Bacon, said, money is like manure, no use unless it's equally spread. Thank you for that uh, fascinating image, which we will all treasure for the rest of the day. Um, I wonder if we'll sit, hear more about this kind of thing in the budget tomorrow. Give, can you give us a sense, Julian, as to what level of inheritance tax or you know any kind of tax on those who've got wealth you would imagine that it would, I mean, it, 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 scale of tax? I mean, I'm not not in detail. Is it a big slug of inheritance or a sort of medium-sized to smaller slug? Well, it's, it's, it would raise about um, six billion. Uh, we need about six billion pounds okay. every year. So um, uh, now uh, I don't have the figures immediately uh -huh. to hand inheritance tax. So I think it's around 15 billion okay. uh, it raises. So um, the amounts that involved, no, it's not as much as that. It's not as much as that. But, uh, it, but um, it's, not, it's an order of magnitude issue. It's not a, it doesn't mean that, in a sense, all inheritance has to be taxed. It's just an increase in the tax oh, no. that already exists. No, 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 no nothing like a 100% inheritance taxes or whatever. Okay. No, nothing like that. No. Okay, great. Okay, thank you ever so much for that. Um, Teresa, um, are the lessons from behavioural science on individual differences that policymakers should pay attention to? Thank you, Danny. Yeah, I think that's a very interesting question and there's probably two parts to it. I think the first part is what lessons do we have from behavioural science now? And I mean, we're obviously living through unprecedented times and it's going to be quite a long time before we fully understand the economic, social and health consequences of the pandemic. But what we do know at the moment is the importance of looking at the individual level. And when we do this, when we get to this level of granularity, 
we really do view that inequalities are a combination and a culmination of factors before and during the pandemic that have led to kind of the outcomes that we're seeing now. I think, uh, as Manu Shafiq said yesterday in her event, which was really interesting, COVID has kind of been this revealer of the inequalities in our society. And kind of to give you a couple of examples of the role in behavioral science here, I want to start by talking about what Julian just said around the, the young people's outcomes. And our own research at the Inclusion Initiative has also shown that uh, under 25s, you know, are more disproportionately impacted in terms of unemployment, redundancies, etc. But this is not a homogenous group. So actually, when we start breaking this down in terms of the intersection of age with ethnicity, with gender, with geographical location, we kind of get a different and disparate picture of what's going on. And uh, we found, for example, in our research here that young black workers were the most affected group. Um, there was a really interesting study that was published last week by King's, which was the most kind of comprehensive analysis of British attitudes. And I want to say that the, the positive news here is that they found that the public is generally aware and concerned about inequalities now in a way that's kind of been growing. And especially things like geographical and income inequalities are something that people are concerned about. At the same time, gender and ethnicity are things that are less of a priority in people's minds at the moment. And I mean, behavioral science would talk about saliency and the availability bias as potential reasons for this. But the reality is that these problems are the ones that in behavioral science and also economics research, we're finding are things that really need to be tackled. Um, I, I think as a second example, we can talk about vaccine uptake. So we know that those who are more likely to suffer from COVID are now being left behind in terms of vaccination. And behavioral science has shown that the personal determinants, so the, the, the characteristics of the individual and how they deal with those decisions really impact how we tackle it. So there can't be a catch-all strategy for vaccination. So dealing with complacency is very different from dealing with lack of access. And something that has been talked a lot about is this idea of social proof. So having you know, someone who's a leader sharing accurate information which makes sense and it works, but is very much related to the trust that we put into those authority figures. So if there's a lot of misinformation, if there's a lot of mistrust, then those types of messages won't be as effective. And what we're seeing right now is, you know, people are reaching out to community leaders to share accurate information, and that seems to be working. But confidence as an area is still something that we have a huge gap in, and especially confidence between different groups hasn't really been explored. So I guess that kind of takes me to the second part, which is where can we go next? And I think here, uh, I mean, I have Paul and Grace here on this panel who have always kind of talked about this message of context matters. And I think hopefully in behavioral science, we're in a position to go a step further now and say, you know, context matters, but individual differences and social determinants really matter as well. Whilst it is important to have kind of something that works for the average, have a specific policy targeting a specific group might work best for the ones that are more likely to be affected positively or negative, negatively by the current circumstances. So I guess if I was to kind of give you a, a take-home message, um, I would say that we really need to start getting a lot more high-powered, high-quality studies that look into ethnicity, gender, geographical location, but more importantly than that, also the intersection between the two. Because, I mean, you know, we know that we can only change what we can measure. And I think whilst we've made some progress here, 
it's kind of a call for everyone, for both behavioral science and policymakers to start measuring better and more. Okay, great. Uh, well, excellent. Um, on the question of, I mean, given it's so topical and you, you've raised it, the, the issue of vaccination and the clear evidence, actually quite difficult to get data on this, but increasingly, well, we have data about um, differences by in different parts of the population as the extent to which they have been vaccinated, aiming off for other factors. Um, slightly relates to something I, I think I said to Grace, which is that some level, the question of how behavioral science operates is, and you've mentioned this yourself, going to have to take account of the those delivering the message as well as the message itself. That's what I think I've just heard you say. And I think that is a, an intriguing, and uh, forgive me, it's new to me, it probably isn't new to any of you, uh, sort of front in all of this, that it isn't simply what the the use of behavioural science is, but who is using it and who owns it, presumably, is an important element in um, delivering the most effective outcomes. Is that, is, that, is that what I've just heard? Yes, yes, absolutely. I think that is something that actually behavioural science has kind of proven quite robustly, the idea that the message is important, but the messenger itself is really, really important as well. I think we're seeing that now in terms of uh, kind of some of the information around the vaccine, but I guess the, the second bit of that is actually how many people do we convert? And then how does that then kind of cascade down to different groups? And I think that's also an opportunity to then think about, is it one group with one leader or actually in the era of misinformation, where a lot of these movements don't have a specific individual that's kind of putting it forward? How do we get the message out there and who do we pick as our messenger? So in that sense, this is going to be, the way in which this all falls, that's what, you know, ends up is going to be a, uh, an important sphere for research by the sounds of it. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, thank you for that. Uh, and uh, last but not least, Paul, Paul Dolan. Um, how can policymakers make use of behavioural science to improve well-being in the UK? You've written very extensively about this books recently. Um, so how does behavioural science, how can it help improve well-being? Yeah, thank you. And thank you for asking me that question. I I'm going to answer this in three parts. The first is about stories and narratives. Second will be about measures and then finishing with the processes by which we implement these things. And I'll try and spend about one minute on each. Um, we know from behavioral science that we listen to narratives and stories. It's, 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 uh, it's a much more powerful driver of what we do and how we feel than any evidence might be. And so in order to take well-being seriously, we have to have a serious conversation about it. And I think one of the things that's struck me over the last year is that we haven't really taken well-being that seriously. We've, um, to some large degree, quite rightly, focused on life expectancy, but completely missed an emphasis on life experience. Um, we know that people care about quality of life as well as quantity of life. And so I think the first part of any serious attempt to embed behavioural science and well-being in policy is to take seriously the fact that people care how well they live. Um, you know, it's almost like it's been, if you were to mention the idea that people might need to have some fun, for example, over the last year, that was almost like a sort of luxury good. Well, it isn't actually. It's part of the human condition to want to experience fun. Um, and so 
whatever we're dealing with, crisis or karma times, we need to remind ourselves of the significance of those experiences. So that would, that would be the first thing I'd say. Um, the second thing is a thing is then is about measurement. I think that um, you know whatever the sayings are, um, that if you don't measure it, you don't value it, or some words to those effect. Um, is that of course in the context of COVID, we've had measures that are very easily salient and recognisable to policymakers, transmission risks and mortality risks, um, and well-being is a bit more of a, a tricky concept to even conceptualise, let alone measure. And so we need to do much more to embed good and robust measurements of both life experience and life expectancy. And of course, we've done that to some extent in health, where we've generated quality adjusted life years. Um, we're doing that to some degree now by generating well-being adjusted life years. Um, so I think that's an important advance to measure things better. And to do, and to do all of that with the lifetime in mind, I was really struck by what Julian said um you know that we we not only care about inequalities at any one moment in time but over time and it's impossible it's almost like impossible to think about an income inequality or a wealth inequality without looking the time at the time frame over which those inequalities exist so i think that requires us to pay much more serious attention to lifetime than we've done and than we do um you know we've seen pre-pandemic i mean in, in, in many ways to pick up on what Teresa said the pandemic has been a magnification of what was already there. Um, we've seen the last four decades of, e of economic growth largely appropriated by older people. Um, we, we need to start redistributing resources from the older generation towards younger people. And some of the ideas that Julian's out outlined, I think, are a really important part of that. Um, and in relation to inequalities, something that hasn't been explicitly mentioned by anyone that's mentioned that's that's. Uh, been on so far is the issue of social class. We talk about intersectionality of different attributes, but it's fundamentally associated with social class. You cannot have a serious conversation about lifetime well-being without a consideration of social class. And that's what we need to do much more. We need to have a much more open and honest debate about that post-pandemic or shaping the post-COVID world as we're discussing. And then finally, processes. Um, we need to embed some of these principles in practice. Um, we need, I know it's always, uh, feels people with horror when you want to say, let's set up more commissions and more authorities and more bodies. But I think we do. I think we do. I think we've seen, we've seen how effective in providing advice SAGE has been. We can have a separate conversation about the um, impact of that. And, and uh, But we've seen how these authorities and bodies can have a significant impact upon uh, um, upon public policy. So I think we need a wellbeing impacts agency. We need a wellbeing commission. Uh, we need to properly engage with the public. One of the things that I've always been a little bit frustrated about, and I don't really have a good answer to this, is really why why there's not much more public demand for wellbeing related policies, because it makes people better off. <laughs> so there's something missing. We're not doing something, there's something we're not doing quite right in bringing the policymakers and the public along together on the journey to improve, um, to improve well-being and I hold myself to account um, in that regard too so so I think narratives measures and processes we're we're about um, at the end of this week we're going to produce a report we're going to launch a report as part of, part of shaping the post-covid world written mostly by authors at the LSE that set out some of these issues in a bit more detail but it's a sort of a call to arms I think and it's an opportunity for us to kind of embed some of these into the post-covid world
Okay, great. I mean, just to build on what you said, I mean, apart from the fact I'd myself quite interested to hear a bit more about well-being adjusted life years, we've all learned about qualies. I'm glad to hear that a new measure is being um, invented as for us all to um, think about. But are you effectively saying that, I mean, I don't want to put words in your mouth and you won't let me, that in the sense life expectancy would be an element in a measure of well-being, in a sense that it's a subset, it's, it's something we're all aware of and we can make judgments about that, but there's a sort of greater um, issue here, which is people's well-being. Uh, is that, would you see that in, in that way round, sort of? They're not trade-offs. The ones one you put words, it's the one time you put words into my mouth and they're not bad words. Um, oh, right. I, I, it, we care, lives, lives go better when they're happier for longer. So we care about frequency and intensity, right? We, and we care about the, it's, the, it's essentially the area under a well-being curve, right? From birth to death. You can think of your life as a series of moments that are aggregated over time to the point at which you die. And so your area under the curve will be greater, all else equal, if it has more along the x-axis, more years, or if it has more well-being up on the y-axis. So any 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 measure of well-being ought to be able to combine both of those two elements into a single index. One other thing, Paul. I mean, yeah. um, Teresa mentioned the King's research, uh, which I, I've also looked at with interest. And you, you were talking about class and the importance of class, which has made a bit of a comeback in public, in academic discourse after years, perhaps, where it was less so. But intriguingly, this research, and Teresa, you'll nod if I've read this, uh, got this correctly, or shake your head if I've got it badly wrong, um, effectively suggested that issues such as geographical location in the country was now a more powerful driver than class or ethnicity, I think, as I, as I read it. And I thought that was a pretty startling piece of success for those who've argued about uh, geographical uh, levelling up and so on. Mm. But... Uh, slightly understates the needs of the large number of relatively deprived and poor people who happen to live in areas that are measured as, as rich. So that class does still play an, an element in all of this, as you've said. Yeah, I don't know. Do you want me to comment? Shall we yeah, shall sure. comment? For, maybe, maybe some of these issues will come out a bit more. Yeah, when we... Go for this one and then we'll go on to the next part of the event. But please yeah. come back now. Go on, Paul, go on. Sorry? Uh, I want, can you want? Do you want to say anything about this, Paul, or should we just? No, move? no, 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 no. I was All saying, right. let's, let's see. I've got, yeah, right. of I want to say loads about everything, but um, I'm also conscious of time and moving on to hearing right. what the audience want to say. Oh. So let me come back. Give me more time later. Okay. All right. Of course. Um, now, in conscious of the audience's well-being, we're going to have a poll, uh, and we've got a very large audience. So this will be a, a very uh, useful test of opinion. So can we put the poll up? Um, and the question is, which I don't think I'm supposed to read out, but here it is anyway. Do behavioural scientists deserve more seats at the policy table? Yes, I'm convinced they do. Maybe. Let's wait and see what this discussion brings. So we can test this again later. And no, it's my opinion. I'm sticking to it. Nicely written questions. Please vote quickly once. I think you can only vote once. So, so why we wait on it? Can I say something about the question you asked, Paul? Right. Yes, please. Do. I, I think you know, I, 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 I think the King's research needs to also be unpacked 
thinking about the type of jobs people have and the yeah. type of industries that they had 20 years ago and whether or not there's been mobility across social classes and across income. Because I think if you look at the government's um, kind of skills manifesto, which is very conscious of what you just described, the idea that people are doing very well in London, but doing not so well outside London, it really points in the direction that it is about the kind of decline of the manufacturing industry, which has led to people going into lower socioeconomic status as measured by income, though perhaps not measured as class. So I guess the question will be as we go forward, whether the old social class registers, generals, measures of social class really do capture how a person is doing with respect to income in the same way. Um, so, so that correlation, I think, needs to be flushed out. We did a good job. That's pretty good. <laughs> Very good. Well, here, here are the poll results, which I'm sure you can all see. So 75% think behavioural scientists deserve more seats at the policy table. There may be a lot in the audience, of course. Uh, 24% maybe. And only 2% say no. But we'll come back and retry this at the end of the discussion and see if we get any, any change. So let's close that for now. And I have a question here from Derek Luff. hope I pronounced that right correctly. Uh, millennials have now survived two labour and housing shocks. Seem that means the 2008 one as well. And at least in the United States can only own 4% of net, only own 4% of net wealth. How can we ensure that these people, many entering their mid and late 30s, are able to capitalise on their skills, these skills development programmes meant to swell the labour force with young informed workers and that does get to, to a, the number of what should we go straight to you grace because you uh, mentioned this from the beginning so I, i'll know, ask the others to comment as well i think this is a great question by derek and i think the mistake of skills policies in the past has been to focus only on the flow so only on people who are leaving school thinking about the type of qualifications to get to them and i think the move towards skills policies in the future has to be to talk about the stock of skills. So for example, in Derek's example, he uses millennials and says that, you know, millennials haven't really benefited and they've been through many more crises than other generations who are alive today. And I think really targeting and upskilling the stock of skills and giving easy access to courses that are shorter in duration than the traditional degree, transition pathways into the degree where the person might not necessarily have a history in, and really thinking slightly outside the box and while still maintaining focus on young people, bringing into account, I mean, you know, Teresa talked, and both Teresa and Julian have talked about under 25s having the hardest time. And a lot of that group, 18 to 25, are out of, you know, are out of schooling and are sitting there with the stock of skills. So I think it's about the policymakers themselves reframing the question that this is about who doesn't have a job, who needs skills, rather than over-focusing on people who happen to be in secondary school. We can now. Um, I think um, I wouldn't add very much to what Grace has said, except again, perhaps we should give some thought to the uh, people who want to retrain and reskill um, and indeed or indeed go become self-employed. And again, I think for all those purposes, again, we have to think about measures for improving their access to capital, their ability to borrow. Uh, and access the capital market. I think uh, it would be quite an important uh, element in any recovery plan. Now, Julian, I mean, just to come back on that, because, you know, unless the press leaks, uh, time was when chancellors had to um, resign if the budget was leaked. Now it's all tried in advance. One of the things that younger people are apparently going to be offered in the budget is uh, more help with mortgages. But you're you're effectively talking about diverting, or not diverting, but thinking more about 
people being able to set up businesses and improve their life standards via work rather than by housing, aren't you? I mean, and it is yeah, done, much more, much more attention is given to housing than to work, isn't it? I never quite understand that, yes. I mean, the housing market has been a, um, an engine of prosperity for the middle, middle and upper classes um, over the, uh, the past um, 20, 30 years. And uh, I don't think it really needs any, um, any further stimulus. In fact, I think of anything, I think it should be uh, the correction should go the other way. So, I'm, yes, I'm very happy to see uh, access to capital diverted <laughs> from housing uh, into small businesses. Yeah. Can I ask you a question? Yeah, can I say? Go on, yes, please. Jump in, jump in, go for it. Go on. Julian, can I ask you if you think people who are self-employed in the gig economy, for example, you know, um, kind of doing deliveries and things like that, if they should be protected by the minimum wage? Um, because at the moment they fall outside of it. And if you actually look at their earnings, it can be somewhere between 20 and 50% lower than the minimum wage. So do you think that there's a role for policy there? Or do you just believe in these transfers to allow people to grow their business? Uh, I I feel ambivalent about this. Um, I've um, uh, uh, I've seen all the arguments in favour of they should be part of the minimum wage. They should have in, in, um, and the rest um, uh, holiday benefits and so on. But I'm 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 also impressed by the number of occasions that one encounters people who rather relish their freedom or their independence of being self-employed. I mean, particularly, I have to say, Uber drivers. Um, who have, I've never encountered, I've taken a lot of Ubers in my time, and I've never encountered an Uber driver who is desperate to become fully employed by Uber, but they, they rather relish the freedom they have. Now, um, you know, that's an anecdote, and I don't, have, uh, I don't have any hard evidence yet. But my feeling is that the drive for self-employment is, is uh, uh, very profound uh, in much of the labour force, um, and we ought to be encouraged. Okay, and Paul, thanks for that. Paul? Yeah, I was just going to quickly say that narratives, again, play a significant role in shaping where we've incentivized people to either live or to train or whatever. So we have this obsession with people going to un to university. We've tried to increase the numbers of people going into higher education as if the 11 plus has now been moved up to 18. You either go to university and you're a success or you don't go and you're a failure. Um, this is an opportunity to recast that story and to again place greater emphasis on training apprenticeships it really it really frustrates me when we have this conversation about universities and i know we're all at the lse so it's a bit ironic that i'm saying this we are obsessed with the 50 percent that go and with very little attention paid to those that don't um and through that life course and not just at 18. Um, and the second in relation to home home ownership again it's become a story that that's what we all ought to be aspiring to um, you, we're not going to change that and let, we're not going to change those ambitions unless we recast the story around it. Um, a lot of the well-being benefits that come from home ownership is when uh, are actually when other if, if other people don't home their own, own their own homes. So there's a massive comparison effect that, that takes place there, as there is with everything. We've had this arms race that you kind of it's the expectation that everyone gets onto the property ladder. So I'm with Julian completely a refocusing of that, of the support away from mortgages towards capital for work. And the tragedy of the post-school FE type distance skills discussion is that, in a sense, a version of it's been going on at least since Harold Wilson with an amazing lack of capacity to advance it. 
um, even though almost nobody's on the other side. It's a fascinating example. It's a lack of salience, I think, within the sort of cultural disconnect at the top of politics, just a lack of salience. Well, I think that's right, but it does play into the diversity piece again, and uh, of um, that it's not only diversity of characteristics that's important, it's additionally diversity of experience and perspective. And that's what's been sadly lacking at the top of policymaking forever. Absolutely. Teresa, you were nodding. and uh, I've left you out so far, which I didn't mean to. Do you want to add anything to this discussion before we move on to the next question? Yeah, I think I'll just add, I'll just add something very quickly. I think on, on Julian's point as well, in terms of self-employed and the gig economy, it's also important to think about uncertainty as something that people embrace. So a lot of, I mean, some studies on millennials kind of outcomes at the moment is that they have embraced this idea of uncertainty has become part of their identity. So taking that away, will that help or not? I don't think it's kind of the right way of approaching it, but actually what is the minimum level of security that we can give to everyone so that they have a job that is just getting them through the day? Because until we have that base level of society, I think we can't really talk about um, anything else. And then I just wanted to agree with Paul as well on the idea of who's making these decisions if they all look the same. If everyone around the room agrees and sees everything from one perspective, we're not going to get very far. So I'm hoping that we not only get people from different social classes, different ethnicities, but also different ages to kind of understand how that impacts them and how they can help their own groups and everyone else. And I, I, and a key to that, I think, is also that they, they're not encouraged to adapt which happens in these rooms. So I think I think Paul actually mentioned this in the event that we did the last time, is that when, when people actually go into occupations or they go into particular positions, if they are the only person in the room, they then take on th 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 those people's viewpoints. So if I have a very different opinion and I'm around a table with you all today and every time I say something different, you all tell me that I'm wrong, then I will probably either adapt to you or leave. And I think that dynamic for policymakers embracing the idea that actually having those different voices and we should encourage people to maintain those different perspectives is a big hurdle but I think it would pay dividends in the way that Teresa just described. I think all of this to me anyway suggests the need for you know a greater willingness among leading politicians who have an access to voice to to make these points to you know sort of debate more of the trade-offs in a slightly more rational way in order that people can think through how they feel about it, how they want to be encouraged to live their lives for the better but that's for another event now sarah day has asked what does very of our time what does behavioral science tell us about why the uk population stuck to covid rules at the beginning but gradually lost interest in doing so. And I assume there's research on this. That Anyway, um, what does this teach policymakers about how to implement public health policies in future? Now, I know you've been writing about this, Paul. Do you want to have a first crack at that one? Oh, God. OK. Um, so, well, actually, observing compliance is, is very different to people's reports of it. So, yeah. I mean, I guess that's the first thing is that it's, there's not going to be a perfect association between those things. But insofar as people's reports say anything about what they're doing, we know, and this has been said, you know, I, I won't be saying anything uh, new in this, is that it's related considerably to degrees of trust in the policymakers and in the decisions that are being made. So we saw a, saw a massive dip in compliance when the whole Barnard Castle issue uh, uh, happened and, and, it sort of, and it sort of dipped and didn't, didn't quite return to pre-Barnard Castle levels. Those kinds of things are important. Um, but the thing that I, the thing that I 
thinking about is is this kind of dichotomy and it's a polarization issue in a way um i suppose that's an i should actually i didn't use this as an opportunity to plug my podcast that's going to be coming soon but i will now do that um on polar on polar on polarization the duck rabbit podcast coming your way soon um is that we get into these kind of false dichotomies of seeing the world as either people that comply or they're cove idiots um and i think that those kinds of narratives are really un, unhelpful i think most people for the last year whatever their views of the measures whatever their views of the trade-offs being made have been trying to muddle and manage their way through um and they've been doing that by and large by complying with the rules um not always and not everywhere um and and i think that's the way that people manage their way through this and i think so i don't it, it's easy to get into this sort of sharp distinction to tell a very simple story about people complying or not and these things happen and then they change their minds and then they do something else it's much more complicated than that and the and the and the real essence of our discussion ought to be at the sort of nuance of people you know we know from other literature um that you know most people but, but all of us see ourselves as as pretty decent honest people right i mean very few few of us tell stories about ourselves that we're not so we basically you know uh, sort of lie and cheat just enough to tell ourselves that we are honest um and of course various people make different kinds of trade-offs about that um but that's essentially what people have been muddling their way through this last year is broadly complying with the rules that have been in some cases really strict and serious and you know for young people under 25 for example that we're just talking about lonely and harmful um and they've muddled their way through best they can um with compliance largely um and i think that's 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 how we should have this discussion and not this kind of dichotomy between people that stick to the rules curt and twitch and then you know tell on people that don't on the one hand and then ravers at 500 people parties on the other hand but, but i suppose paul there's also an, an element in this question though of you know you can change people's behavior i think it's common almost common sense isn't it that you can make people change their behavior radically for a bit but not forever i mean in a sense especially when it's such an unexpected uh one off i mean nothing quite like this has happened in anybody's life who you know didn't live through the second world war so the um degree of constraint i think surely i mean it, it, in behavioral science at some level if you change people's behavior very radically for a while the chances are there will always be a tapering of impact over time will there not i mean in any sphere of not just this one well either i mean it's an interesting question about the tapering of the behavior or the tapering of the impact right so because the human condition is remarkably resilient to most of what life throws at us so there will be a considerable degree of adaptation to most things so the adaptation processes in terms of impact make the behavior more likely to stick but then you've got the behavior then may not stick as it becomes harder for people to comply yeah so you've got these two forces working in opposite directions um i think what is interesting of, of course in the early stages of the pandemic and actually at many stages throughout fear has been a galvanizing motivator of action um it would be interesting to see what happens as the fear levels drop as vaccination yep. rates increase because you've taken away one significant driver of human action and we'll just say one one final thing um is that whilst i fully am committed to the idea that people are pro social <laughs> we are all motivated 
to help other people. Um, and, and actually, I've written quite a lot about how we're all happier when we do, and I would encourage much more of it. Um, we do, I think, have a way of telling a story about a lot of what we're doing as being in the interests of other people when, when actually a lot of those motivations come from personal self-benefit. And so fear has been a considerable motivator for action. Some people have actually thrived during these these months and these um, lockdown measures. I've also been quite outspoken on the fact that the lockdown measures have been entirely decided upon, almost entirely throughout the world, without exception, probably, by people who can work from home on full pay. Um, and so, needless to say, the impacts on their lives have been much less than those affected by them by their policy decisions. So. Um, so I think, what, what am I saying in answer to your question? Have I even answered your question? No, no, it's a, it's a really interesting discussion. And, and, and I just want to bring Teresa in on this one before I move on to the next question, because you touched on similar issues. Teresa, would you like to? Um... Yeah, I think just to add to, to what Paul was saying, I mean, when we looked at people's attitudes at the beginning of January, people were pro, generally, the majority of people were pro a new lockdown, and that lockdown coming in potentially sooner than it happened. So I think... As Paul said, we have these salient examples of people who are breaking the rules, but the majority of people are following the rules. And it's probably, you know, it's probably a combination of what stories are easier to be said and what stories stick to everyone's minds about these raves when probably the majority of university students have not left the residency and actually have tried really hard to comply, even though the health impacts for them are obviously not as big as for older people. So I think empathy as opposed to fear, could also be an interesting motivator for why people have continued to remain in lockdown, to continue changing their lives. And that message of protecting others, of, you know, doing something, a personal sacrifice, because it is for everyone else, has actually worked very well as well. It's interesting. We've got a lot of concepts now in the discussion, which clearly, you know, empathy, fear, you know, how other people view us are all drivers of our personal behaviour. Um, Julian, Grace, Julian, then Grace. Uh, just the, um, uh, relating it to behavioural science again, um, thinking about the uh, impact of the different measures that have been taking place and their difference um, on extrinsic motivation and the impact on intrinsic motivation. Um, I mean, it'd be very interesting, uh, I don't have any evidence on this, to, to look at what's happened in Sweden. Um, where you didn't have such, you had a, you had some sort of lockdown, but nothing like as but not as strong as as ours uh, or most other countries. And it'd be interesting to see whether you've seen the same level of behavioural fatigue there that we have uh, we've seen here. Yeah, good point. And of course, the measurement of behavioural fatigue is itself an interesting thing. You know, you feel fatigue, but whether you change your behaviour as a result of it is another matter. Grace. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think just to emphasize the point on that we tend to think in binaries, even though that's not what happens. So people weren't compliers or not compliers. And, and this role of adaptation is really important. But I think Julian, Teresa and Paul covered everything that I want to say. OK, let's move on to a question from Margot Webley. I think most people see the government as responsible for tangible things such as infrastructure, police, teachers, roads, etc. as well-being on the other hand, is seen as the private responsibility of individuals. Now, how can we change this? Now, I think that um, you, Paul, and others at the LSE have spent or have, be, have you know, started to try to, to change 
issues, um, you know, how government thinks, government, I think, itself thinks of itself in terms of building things and paying money to people, and, and that's what government thinks it does and trying to control that. And only latterly, courtesy of uh, individuals at the LSE and elsewhere, have they started, have had the Office for National Statistics to measure other things. So how can we change it? I think we are changing it a bit, but let's begin again with you, Paul, because it's uh, something you've written about, well, everybody's written about here, but go for it. Yeah, thank you. And thank you for the question. I think um, language matters a lot. I mean, in the ONS questions that we wrote, the four wellbeing questions, there's a negatively framed one, which is about how anxious people feel. It's really interesting if you say to people, you know, the role of government should be to maximise happiness. Some people might laugh at that. If you say to people, the role of government should be to minimise suffering and misery, who, who would argue with that, right? It'd be pathological not to agree with that. So I think a lot of it is in the framing of what we use. I think around policymakers, we might want to be using suffering and misery uh, more than we should be using happiness and well-being, even though we might measure these things in the same way. Um, then that leads us naturally into the sorts of things that Richard Layard has spent a lot of time yeah. talking about and arguing for is a prioritization of mental health. I mean, that fundamentally is where most of all of what happens to us is rooted through. I mean, all of the infrastructure and the buildings and all these things and the, you know, the houses that we buy and the education that we have, they're, they're, they're means through which we experience better or worse mental health. So it would seem a bit odd if we didn't want to directly measure that and account for it in public policy. So, yeah. Okay. Grace. Yeah. Um, I mean, for, for me, I think the question it should be slightly different. So I think it should be when we build roads, when we hire teachers, and when we have these traditional policy levers, how do they change happiness in society? Um, and I think if we think about it that way, then we routinely get into evaluating th these things against happiness. And what Paul said to me, I've been saying for a very long time, for me, the problem with the happiness in this literature is that we always talk about this idea of maximising happiness, which makes sense from the individual level. But for the government level, just like health, I think it's about ensuring a minimum level, minimum level of happiness for, for, for citizens in the UK. And the kind of reframing with things like misery and, and, and thinking about mental health then makes a lot of sense to me. And, you know, we, I did some work recently, which is coming out with uh, Jonathan Gruber, Carol Popper and Rob Saunders, where we actually show that IAPT, which is something that Richard is heavily involved in, um, to help people with um, depression and anxiety, which was rolled out across the UK, actually saves money in terms of hospitalisation. So these things that we actually care about. And I think a lot of the problems is that we, as economists and behavioural scientists, we look at one thing. We have one outcome that we're interested in and moving towards looking at more outcomes with the inclusion of happiness, I think is important, but with a minimum threshold guarantee, just like for my physical health. I think that's language that policymakers would prefer. OK, thanks. And Theresa, I'm going to hold you, Julian, because I've got one more question, which is, I think, aimed very directly at you, which I'm going to come to as the very final question. But Theresa, do you want to comment a little bit more on this issue? Yes, I think, I mean, I, I agree with the idea that we need a minimum level of happiness, but also it's important to understand the differences, right, the gaps in well-being between different groups. I think during the pandemic, you know, people are staying at home, yes, but women are being disproportionately left with taking care of the kids and household work, and this is affecting their mental health, which can impact also their productivity, their job prospects, you know, it kind of all rolls into one. And I think also looking at the gap, is a really interesting way of seeing are things effective overall or actually are some groups being disproportionately affected by them or even not benefiting at all? I must say to a personal level, given that politicians are, you know, if they think about it, 
really interested in well-being because it's a nice sum up sum of what they're really trying to improve for people slightly amazing they don't think about it more but that's just a personal throwaway now from oliver chaplin uh and i'm going to aim this at you directly julian but others of course feel free how can policymakers align lifetime oblique intergenerational considerations with the short-term nature of the political cycle. Now, you've worked in government, I'm sure others here have, you know, Grace and others. But it's a great question, isn't it? Because we're talking, as ever, so many policy issues with the difference at the political timescale as compared with the need for a longer-term change to the way we do things. I think that's right. Only I was... Um... I have to say, then very briefly say, my own experience doesn't confirm it. I um, oh, right. I was very struck working in government um, how long term the people I was talking to, the people I was advising, the um, uh, thought. I mean, admittedly at that time it looked like Tony Blair was going to be with us forever, um, so maybe he had a kind of longer term view. But I was, I I I can only say I was um, rather impressed the extent to which the electoral cycle did not seem to uh, significantly affect uh, their longer-term decisions. I know, but it may not have done that, but it sort of did kill off the baby bonds, as you, or, you, know, as you discussed. I mean, the trouble is, one government of itself may think it's there forever, but we know they're not. And then you've got this sort of disruption as the next people take over, which does slightly bear out Oliver's point, doesn't it? Oh, yes. Well, clearly, uh, that, that is a problem. It would be nice. Uh, we, uh, it took us a long time to get consensus between governments over pension reform, for example, um, thinking about the longer term. Um, yeah. And new governments would come in, uh, throw it all up in the air. We're still seeing it with social care, of course. I mean, yes. we're not getting any long-term decisions made about social care, and that's precisely the point that uh, Oliver's making. Okay, now I don't want to ignore my other three panel members. Any of you want to say anything on this before I return to the poll? And we must then finish. Don't, I'm not trying to put you off, by the way, but okay, or if it would appear not. So we're going to re return. Framing, Tony, you framed it really well. And so I wasn't meaning to defeat the behavioural nudge, if ever there was one. Um, uh, <laughs> can we do the poll again? We know to go back to the poll. Still a huge audience. See if. There's been any shift. So here it is. Do behavioural scientists deserve more seats at the policy table? You now heard more of a debate about it. Yes, maybe no. It's when they all say no now, isn't it? That's that would be so good. No, no it's bound to. <laughs> things can only get worse, as um, yeah. wasn't said in 1997. <clears throat> so we wait, we wait, we await the result with excitement. Uh, while we're awaiting the result, I'll just, in an efficient and a very efficient way, uh, thank. Grace, Julian, Teresa and Paul for their uh, direct and, and very clear engagement in this complex hinterland issue. It's an hinterland between academic discipline and policy, which is, for me, absolutely fascinating. So thank you and thank our questioners. They've been great questions. And I also we like... We thank you for being such a fantastic chair, Tony. We should, but we won't. All right, then why, yes, why spare some time? Um, and also Rebecca and others who have been behind the scenes, off stage, making everything run so smoothly. Are we going to get the results of the, um, yes, we do, 81, it better. 50. So, yes, it's, <clears throat> there are fewer maybes, but more of them have gone to yes than the no. no as well. 
So uh, <laughs> <laughs> we've slightly polarised people. We've so polarised, polarised, we've polarised. Despite yeah. all your efforts, we've polarised. Anyway, I'd like to thank everybody. Fascinating subject. Do join more LSE Festival events. Thank you to my speakers. Thank you to the audience. Thank you to uh, those who've asked questions. Thank you to Rebecca, who organised everything. And I look forward to seeing you at other LSE events, as I'm sure we all enjoy and look forward to take part in them. So uh, thank you very much and goodbye. Bye.